So I'm glad you're here. This is, um, this is going to be part four of uh, our look into the Garden of Eden. And um, any of these can be listened to independently. So uh, if you're just uh, joining for the first time now, you're, you're in the right place at the right time. But um, if you want to hear the others, the part one is um, it's called the, the DNA of Seduction, the Snake and Eve. Um, part two is uh, called, I think, more on the Garden of Eden. I, I sort of couldn't quite come up with a very good title for that one. <laughs> Part three is called X-Ray of the Soul, um, subtitled More on the Garden of Eden. And now this is part four. Uh, and um, basically what I want to talk about today is to, to get into um, this notion a little bit more of what preceded the, what preceded uh, the, the chet of uh, the mistake that Adam and Chava made by eating from the tree. In other words, Hashem created a certain um, realm of circumstances before, um, that made it possible to even make this mistake to begin with. And how are we to relate to these things and how do they affect us today? So let me be a little bit more specific. We touched on one of these things um, last week, but I want to give a more comprehensive overview, and um, it's something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about. Uh, basically, before we even eat from the tree of knowledge, there are two mistakes that the Torah brings down that happened. And um, we've touched on them before, but we've never integrated them in terms of a fuller understanding of how it relates to Adam and Chava and eating from the tree. Okay, so what are these two mistakes that preceded the eating from the tree? So the first, which we mentioned, is the rebellion, if you will, of the fruit trees. Um, Hashem said when he made the fruit trees, when he, when he spoke them into existence, he said, and listen to the language carefully, he commanded that there should be fruit trees bearing fruit. And then a little bit later it says, and there were trees bearing fruit. It said, Hashem wanted there to be fruit trees bearing fruit, and there were trees bearing fruit. So the rabbis look into that and they say that the, the trees rebelled against Hashem. Or the earth as well, because that was part and parcel of the tree. That the tree itself was supposed to be a fruit tree bearing fruit meaning that the tree itself was supposed to taste like the fruit. So, so this is a little bit mysterious. What, um, what, what does that mean? And, and also, a very striking correlation, you, you must admit, between the fact that the fruit trees seem to rebel against Hashem, and then we rebel against Hashem with the fruit tree. So there has to be a very strong connection between those two things. But there is another aspect of creation that went against the word of Hashem before eating from the Eitzadas, and that's the sun and the moon. So how does that connect as well? We don't have the, um, the easy direct connection in terms of fruit tree, fruit tree with the sun and the moon. So it's a little bit more challenging to understand what it is. But there's a very strong connection, as you'll see. So let's just review that for a moment. What did the sun and the moon do? Um, and this goes before the fruit tree, it says Hashem commanded that there should be two great luminaries. And then it says, 
um, I'm sort of uh, uh, paraphrasing the Pasuk, but within that same verse, it says, there were two great luminaries, meaning of equal stature, meaning that the sun and the moon were of equal size originally. And by the end of the Pasuk, it says, the sun was greater than the moon. So the rabbis hone in on that. Wow, there's a whole story here. Within that one verse, you've got both the sun and the moon being absolutely equal, and then all of a sudden the sun is big and the moon is small. What happened? So the rabbis teach that the moon said to Hashem, is it proper that two heads should share the same crown? Meaning that there should be two great orbs, you know, um, both seemingly the ruler of the sky, there should be one ruler. So, who's it going to be, Hashem? And Hashem said to the moon, good point, make yourself small. Which, you know, seemingly was not the answer the moon was looking for. But, but nonetheless, this is, this is what happened. So, so, again, how are we to understand, how are we to understand this? Now, I want to throw in one more point, which I think is a very important point, which is not going to make this more superficial, it's actually, I think, going to make it much deeper. Which is, how can you say that the moon rebelled against God? How can you say that a tree rebelled against God? Does a moon or a tree have free choice that it can make a decision like this? So, if we say, well... You know, now that you bring it up, I, I guess not. I guess it doesn't have free choice. Then obviously the rabbis are teaching something very, very, very deep about what these disconnects were. And again, we're tying this all in since we know that all of creation was made for human beings. And the greatest proof of this is that when we celebrate the anniversary of creation, of the birthday of the world... We do it on Rosh Hashanah, which we know is the sixth day of creation, not the first day of creation. It's the day when Adam and Chava were created. So we know that the world is not called a world until human beings are created. So that being the case, we see very strongly that the world was created for human beings. So if there's a first mistake that's made, then we really have to hone in on the first mistake that human beings made. And if there were other quote-unquote mistakes, like on the part of the fruit tree and the sun and the moon before Adam and Chava ate, then we have to understand that all of that was setting up the whole incident in the Garden of Eden. So now we have to go deeper and we have to figure out what's the connection, what's the relevance between these two things. So now, now let's look into it some more. So the fruit tree we explained last week, in part three. So I'm going to go through it a little bit more quickly because I want to spend a little more time on the sun and the moon. So, so, so let's look at it like this. According to the Ramchal, the mistake that Adam and Chava were tested in, or the area they were tested in, was something that he refers to as Shte Rushuyos, which means would they understand that there's only one power in the world? Or, were, or would they make the mistake and think that there's more than one power in the world? This was the primary test. To recognize the oneness of Hashem. And this is the test that all of us go through in our own lives. To recognize the oneness of Hashem. 
I heard very beautifully Rabbi Blech said that when one covers their eyes during Shema, when we say Shema, we're saying the declaring that Hashem is one, that, that all, of, all of existence is basically subsumed within the oneness of Hashem, that Hashem saturates all of existence, His oneness. The reason why we close our eyes and cover our eyes is to block out this, this, this superficial level of reality which challenges us and which suggests that there are multiple powers. And by closing our eyes to this superficial veil, we're able to tap in at a much deeper level to the oneness that exists and fills all things. So, so one should know that when they say Shema, that they have a chance to get back, so to speak, to the Garden of Eden before the Chet, in order to see the oneness and then to bring that recognition of God's oneness back into this world. And that's a great fixing that someone can do with the Shema. So now, if Adam and Chava were being tested, if there are multiple powers, now we can understand the whole idea of the fruit tree and the sun and the moon. This will be our key. Again, if we take the premise that the fruit tree does not have any free choice, then the idea that nature can go against the will of Hashem was an intentional act on the part of Hashem. Let me rephrase that. Hashem wanted to put into the world the idea that maybe nature is an independent power. Maybe a fruit tree can actually be commanded one way and do something completely different because it in itself is an independent power other than Hashem. Hashem wanted to create that illusion that there were other powers than Him, that nature itself was another power in addition to God. This is what it means that the fruit tree rebelled against God. Not that it had free choice. But Hashem wanted to create this illusion that nature could be a separate power. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Okay. Well, it isn't, but, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is what we were supposed to ask ourselves, right? Um, okay, good. So now we can get to the sun and the moon. And, by the way, just to follow that back to Adam and Chava, so Adam and Chava now think that there's multiple powers, and the snake says, listen, you can be a power too. So why not? As long as Hashem is giving out seats on the board of directors, right? Why not? I'll take one too. Okay. So now, let's get, into the, let's get into the sun and the moon, and you'll see how this connects. So, so believe it or not, the Gomorrah says something, you know, every once in a while, the Gomorrah uses a phrase, which, or, or the rabbis use a phrase, which, which says that if the Gomorrah didn't say it itself, we could never say this in a million years. Right? Because it's such a, it's almost on the level of a heresy, really, to say it. But if the Gomorrah says it, then, then we can say it. But, but the rabbis, when they come across teachings like this, they're almost frightened to say them over. So with that in mind, listen to this teaching. It's, a, it's an incredible teaching. I mean, if you understand it, there's nothing scary about it, but it's just so, it's so amazing. Okay. In the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh, 
that we said today, we say something very, very, very interesting. We say that we have to bring a sin offering, a, a korban chatas. So the rabbis ask, wait a second, it's a new month, I didn't have time to do anything wrong yet. <laughs> what, am I bringing, what am I bringing a sin offering for? Right? You hear the question? Who's it for? So they go through different possibilities, who's it's for, and then the Gomorrah says the following. You ready? The Gomorrah says, Hashem says, bring a sin offering for me. And so, the rabbis ask, what did Hashem do that he himself is bringing a korban chatas? Hashem sinned? What did he do that he feels as though he has to atone for something? Right? The, it's quite amazing, right? So they answer something equally surprising, but they're talking in a very deep encoded language here. They say, yes, he did do something. You know what it is? He lessened the light of the moon. He lessened the light of the moon. And they end the discussion there. And it's sort of like, okay, well, what does that mean? So I heard this from Reb Shlomo and also from Rabbi Vigdor Miller, the same explanation from both of these sources, which is, that's a beautiful thing in itself. But, um, but it's to be understood as follows. It's very, very deep. What does it mean that Hashem lessened the light of the moon? That means that Hashem lessened the revealed aspect of His presence in this world. Now, on the one hand, that was necessary in order for us to have free choice. Because what separates us from angels, and sometimes we hear in different talks and things like that, sometimes angels are referred to um, uh, almost uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that slights their greatness as robots, because they don't have the power to exercise free choice and choose to do the right thing like human beings do, because they've got such a great revelation of the oneness and of the presence of Hashem, they can't, they, they can't not do Hashem's will. Whereas, we live in an environment that's so concealed, our greatness is that we can exercise free choice in such a way where we can see through all of the veils and all the illusions of nature and choose to serve Hashem. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. But, what's the other side of it? With the lessening of that light comes the ability to choose the wrong thing and to make a mistake. And so Hashem says, now this is incredible, Hashem says, you know what? Because I lessened the light of the moon, meaning to say, because I created an environment wherein which you could make a mistake, I'm a little bit a partner in your mistake. So therefore, I need an atonement as well. What a God. Right? You want you reason number 8 billion, how much Hashem loves you? He says, if you knew me, if you knew me, if you really knew what you're standing before, you'd never do anything wrong ever. But for your own good, I created an environment where you could get something even better. <coughs> but it's going to be stumbling around in the dark a little bit. 
And you're going to make mistakes. That's just going to be part of the process. But I'm there with you. And when you're atoning, I'm also atoning. You know something? i tell you something. We've got after Tisha B'Av, every year after Tisha B'Av, the first Shabbos is called Shabbos Nachamu. And we, the name means, it means a consolation. It's, um, Hashem is saying, I'm, you, you should be consoled, my people. But if you look at the, 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 the prophet, it, it actually begins with, um, with a double repeti- repet- rep- repetition of it. It says, um, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Consoled, be consoled. So whenever you see in Torah the doubling of a, of a language, that means that Hashem is really emphasizing that point. He really, you know, even more so. Whatever you thought, even more so. Okay? So again, on the simplest level, on the simplest level, you say, okay, Hashem understands the destruction of Tisha B'av and all the suffering through human history, and He's saying, I'm with you, I'm with you, okay? Okay, good, that's for sure true. I heard an explanation from one of the Hasidic Rebbe's, and I'm not sure who, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, the thought itself is, is this. Hashem says, you know, He says, you should be consoled, meaning, this thing that you went through, it's really difficult, and I understand, but it was really, it's really for your best. It's really for your best, ultimately. Okay? That's the first level of consolation. Okay, that's the first nachamu. So what room does that leave, right? There's a, what, what's the additional thought? What's the second nachamu? Listen to this. But the second nachamu is, but I'm sorry you had to go through it at all. Right? The first level is that you should know deep, deep down that this thing that you went through is really for the best. But the second one is, but I'm sorry you even had to go through it at all. Okay. So now, with the idea in mind that the lessening of the light of the moon was really... um, was really the diminishment of Hashem's um, understandable presence, right? Our ability to, to see Him. It was a concealment of Hashem's presence in this world. Let's now tie this back to the sin of the fruit tree and see how this set the table for the problem in the Garden of Eden from the eating of the eight Hadas. So it can be understood in a very unified way now. The, the sun and the moon and the fruit tree are two parts of the same coin. Remember, according to the Ramchal, we ate from the fruit tree. The test was, would we think that there was more than one power in the world? So now, see how Hashem set the table before this test took even, that, that this test even took place. First, what Hashem did was, He diminished the light of the moon. Meaning to say, he created a world where his presence was concealed and where one has free choice. But one has the capacity to make a mistake. And now the part two of this is that the fruit tree rebelled. Meaning he strengthened the notion that nature 
was an independent power. So do you see how this is a one-two punch? First, Hashem withdraws, conceals His light, right? So the positive gets hidden, and the negative gets strengthened. The idea that nature maybe acts on its own, that idea becomes enlarged. With this, seemingly the fruit tree is doing whatever it wants to do. So now it's all of one piece. Okay. So now, we learned in the, uh, in the first part that when the snake, Bidchava, it put something, this spiritual toxin into the world called the Zuama into the world, which was this, this concealment, this further concealment of understanding Hashem and seeing Hashem. And we know that the Gomorrah says in Gomorrah Shabbos, um, on Kufnun Ches, I'm sorry, Kuf Mem Vav, 146. It says that um, it says that at Har Sinai, when we accepted the Torah, this Zuama, this 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 this, this ill, whatever this this spiritual ill that the snake put into the world, went away at Har Sinai. Okay? Now, isn't it interesting that Shavuos is also the new year for fruit-bearing trees? (laughs) In other words, what happens on a new year? uh, There's a judgment where the next year is being decided. We know on Rosh Hashanah, our next year is being decided in a lot of different ways on that day. Right? It's also true for these fruit trees. But isn't it interesting that this day, which is Shavuos, which is the fixing of the eating from the tree, is also the judgment on fruit trees. Now listen to this. There's a very old holy minug. Rabbi Wolfson explains it. He says something amazing. Do you know that there's a tradition to bring non-fruit-bearing trees into shul on Shavuos? In other words, you put these trees that don't give off fruit. And Rabbi Wolfson explains, do you know why you do that? Because when Mashiach comes, there's going to be a grand tikkun, a grand fixing of all of nature, and even trees that don't bear fruit are going to give off fruit. And so these trees are testifying what's going to happen when the world gets fixed, which is synonymous with the giving of the Torah. So we can extend this idea that Rabbi Wilson brings down and connect us to this discussion a little bit more. That, that just like the, non, that just like the, the fruit-bearing trees are going to be fixed, so this problem that we had eating from the fruit-bearing tree is also going to get fixed. Yes, yeah, all of nature will be rectified. That's right. And, and we pointed it out we pointed it out, but it should be raised one more time that when we count the Omer, the language here is not by coincidence. We say to Hashem, we say that uh, this word Zuama, actually it's in the form of Mizuama Sam, but it's, we're talking about the Zuama, this, uh, this, this snake poison, if you will, um, should be fixed. 
as we count each day toward Har Sinai, which means we're still in it today. In other words, to the extent that we connect with Torah and we accept Torah, we counteract all of these spiritual ills in the world. Okay. So now, now I want to connect this to something that's going to sound like a whole different discussion, but we're absolutely on the same point. I want to talk about what happens when milk hits the walls of a meat pot that's cooking. (laughs) And you'll see, we're absolutely on the same page. We're still talking about the Garden of Eden. We're still talking about the illusion of other powers. But first we have to take a little trip into Basar V'chalav. Okay? The laws of meat and milk. Now, here's the example. You have a pot that's cooking on a stove. Let's say, for argument's sake, just so you can have a mental picture, let's say a third of the pot is filled with a meat stew. Okay? So now, what happens is, a drop of milk falls on the outside of the pot. That's our example. That's our problem. That's our case, okay? So, what's, what, what, what do you do? So now, believe it or not, the first, questions, the first question that the rabbis ask is, did it fall on the outside of the pot, above or below where the food is? Okay? Now, you would think if it fell opposite, on the outside of the pot, next to where the food is in the pot, right, the lower part of the pot, that that probably would be worse, right? Well, it turns out that it's better. The reason is because the milk is going to do one of two things according to the Taz. It's either going to stay on the outside of the pot and there's no problem even to begin with. Or what's going to happen is the milk or the, the um, language of the Shulchan Aruch is the, the blios of the milk, meaning the taste of the milk, is going to go into the wall of the pot and the meat that's cooking is also going to go into the wall of the pot. And inside the wall of the pot, there's going to be a combination and a cooking of the taste of meat and milk. And then that's going to go into the food. So you say, well, I thought you said that that was the good example. It is the good example. The reason is because we have this concept called batobashishim, which means that an impurity is counteracted. If you have 60 times that impurity, then, that, then, then, then the situation is still good. So, what's going to happen is it's like a, um, instead of a, a, imagine a jewel thief breaking into a, uh, instead of breaking into a, uh, a jewelry store, he by accident breaks into a police station. <laughs> so, he's going to get arrested right away. So, so, it is with the drop of milk. It's going to bore its way in to where the meat is, but there's instantly going to be 60 times the meat of the milk, and so it's going to be... No problem. Ah, okay, interesting. But now, this is really just setting up part two. What happens if the drop of milk falls above the food line? Well, now we begin to see how that's going to be a problem. Because once it bores through, there's no meat waiting there to to nullify it right away. So what's going to happen the impurity is going to get into the wall of the pot, and it's now going to begin to spread around the pot. And now you're not just going to need 60, 
times that drop, but you're going to need 60 times the combined area that it's affected. And according to which um, rabbi you learn by, that area that it's affecting can even require, this is going by the Maharam, 60 times 60 the size of the drop. Meaning, you'll need 3,600 times in meat the size of the drop that came in. Now that's a much larger problem. Now interestingly, you could have made your life much simpler if the drop of milk just went right into the meat itself. (laughs) You thought, oh, it just hit the wall of the pot. I'm in great shape. And it's on the outside of the pot. I'm in fantastic shape. But it's, it's, uh, there's a whole physics to this, what's going on here. So, so had it just gone right into the meat, then you would have had instantly 60 times the drop, and it would have been no problem. Like if it had, blo- like if it had fallen on the outside of the pot opposite the food line. It would have gone right into the food. Okay? So now I want to connect this to the discussion that we've been talking about the Garden of Eden and the idea of nature being a separate power. And listen, listen to the connection. You see, if something hits you directly, something hits you directly, and you can either understand that as the drop going right into the meat or going from the outside of the pot right into the meat, either way, that's a direct hit. If someone comes up to you directly and tells you, there is no God, or this, that, or the other thing, right? Now, it says in Perke Avos that a person has to refine themselves and educate themselves so that they know how to answer a heretic. You have to be able to answer that person. And if you aren't at that place yet, you have to learn how to be able to answer that heretic. And some people say, What's, who's the heretic? The heretic is your own Yetzirah. You have to know how to answer the questions that come into your own head. You have to be able to do that. So what do you say to someone like that? Well, there are many, many things that you can say to a person like that. I mean, there's one thing that, that, that I was thinking about recently that just kind of like, sort of like opened my eyes. Imagine you've got a book, okay? You're holding a novel in your hands. It's a, just a regular book, right? And you read a line in this book that you're holding in your hands that says, this book does not exist. <laughs> Now, you could say, see that? The book doesn't exist. (laughs) And you could say, anyone who says the book exists must be an idiot because it says right here that the book does not exist. Meanwhile, you're holding the book. (laughs) Where did you come from? Where did the world come from? How does the world continue to exist? Where did the nature of time and space, the fabric of reality come from? Of course there's a God. Of course there's a God. Of course there's a God. Anyway, there are many, many, many answers. That's just a a recent one. Um, So, if someone comes up to you, and this is the drop of milk going right into the meat, and directly confronts you, okay, it takes some strength, takes some knowledge, it takes a little bit of learning. But you can talk to that person and you can counteract that person. Okay, maybe he won't be convinced or she won't be convinced, but you are not harmed by their, their you know, ignorance, essentially. Even though it might be coming from a well-meaning place, and, and uh, I don't mean to insult any 
one who's not a believer in God, a, a lot of people, deep down, they definitely believe in God, but they're very angry at God. I'll give you another example. Um, from a while back, I was once watching television, and they had a little, I don't know if the whole special was on these people, or this was just one little segment that I tuned in for. They had a little documentary, and they were talking about um, how they set the table of the Queen of England for a, for a state dinner. And there's a small army of um, uh, workers who put out the plates. You can imagine, it's the Queen of England, right? So this is quite a, whatever the most impressive table a person can set, that's what this table looks like. So there are multiple plates, and there are multiple forks, and there are multiple knives and spoons and goblets and centerpieces and flowers and all the rest. I mean, whatever you can imagine, it's the Queen of England. It's on the table. So they were showing how the workers set all these things up, but this was the part that blew my mind. They then take a tape measure out, and they measure the distance between the forks and between the plate and the flowers, and so that it's absolutely, absolutely exact. Okay? Now imagine, you walk into a room with a table set like this. And I think we've all been at an event or seen pictures or whatever it is where sometimes a, uh, a caterer will even sculpt the food, right? And so imagine you, you sit at this table and there's a sculpted piece of food in front of you and you taste the food and you say the following. Listen carefully. You say, I don't like the food, therefore I deny the existence of the chef. Does it make any sense? Here you have this incredibly elaborate, precise thing in front of you. And this food that's been... But people taste life. So many people taste this world. And they're so angry at God. They're so angry. that They say, you don't exist. Because how could you exist? And there'd be this injustice and hatred in the world. How could it be? It, it can't be. And so they, they then take it to the next step. So they say, that, therefore, there's either no God, or there is a God, but He's not good. Okay? And so, one of the theme songs of this, of this series of talks has been the following. The answer, that sounds like a pretty strong, how do you answer that, right? But the answer is very straightforward and it's surprisingly simple. Like all good answers should be, by the way. Um, and the answer is there is a God and he is good but the world isn't finished yet that's, that's just the bottom line we're in the process this is, this is the glory of human beings this is the greatness of Torah and mitzvahs we are in the process of completing the world of bringing about that initial vision that Hashem had when he created the world which is the perfected world and we're right now in the middle that's what it is that's what it is bless you and that's that's an awesome privilege to be partners with God on anything. I mean, much less like the, the entire purpose of this world. It's beyond, 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 beyond. Okay, so now how does this connect to the wall, the milk hitting the pot above the food line? Okay, so the answer is like this. When, 
when the, when the drop of milk hits above the food line, the impurity, because it's milk and meat, there's nothing impure about milk, if it's kosher milk, but together it's, it would be called an impurity in this context. The impurity spreads around, and now you don't just need 60 against the drop, you need a great amount to counteract it. So what are the walls of the pot above the food line? So I want to say this is the environment that we're in. So when a person walks out of their house and no one is coming up to them and being obnoxious to them and contradicting their belief directly. No one is saying a word to you either way. But you look at the world and you see this aspect and this aspect and this is a question mark and that's a question mark and that's a question mark. Your whole environment is challenging you. It seems like, remember, to connect it to the fruit tree, it seems like nature itself is an independent power, that there are other powers in this world. Then that's a much stronger test to a person. A person needs a lot more strength in order to be able to address that level of challenge. It can be done. It's done with, it's done with learning, it's done with davening, it's done with dveka's kite connecting yourself directly to Hashem, it can completely be done. But here is an example. If, 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 we, if, if we kid ourselves, what the, the magnitude of the test that, that Adam Arishon got and Chava got, I mean, the world itself was challenging them in such an awesomely difficult way. It was not just, oh, you know, why'd you have to eat that, you know? It was way, way more than that. And that's our life. That's our life today. That's our life today. Um, so, so the point is, the point is, is that there's one God. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We started a new book in the Torah today, uh, Sefer Bamidbar, which, um, I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, Reb Shlomo calls this the book of mistakes. Because every single Parsha, it's uh, Korach, the rebellion against Moshe, and the sin of the spies, and, and um, Moshe hitting the rock, and not going into Israel. And every, it seems like every single, uh, every single um, Parsha has another like tragic kind of like a downfall in it. So, so it's appropriately called the book of mistakes. So I was struck by the fact that of all the Parshas, it's the only other Parsha in the book of the, in the Torah that starts with the letter Bez, Bamidbar. It's a, it's a Bez, but it's the same letter as Bez, which is the same as Breshis. And I thought to myself, you know, if it's the book of mistakes and Breshit starts with what? Genesis starts with what? The first mistake. We're still trying to recover from that, from that first mistake. And I thought, you know something? The upside of mistakes, right? I mean, the best scenario is you never, get it, you never make a mistake. That's what we all long for. But the upside for a mistake is it opens your eyes to what needs to be fixed. You know, I mentioned this to someone and they said, yeah, you know something? 
sometimes imagine like a, a pot that you can't see inside of it. But sometimes when the pot breaks, now you can see inside. Right? So, 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 so this whole, this whole experience with the, with the eight sadas, with the eating of the fruit, it's a mistake and we make mistakes in our lives, you know. You know, I was thinking a while back, when it comes time for Pesach, we have to clean up all the bread in our house, all the crumbs. And everybody knows that the crumb stands for Yetzahara and, and uh, an inflated kind of delusional sense of self and um, all sorts of things like that. And so you clean them all up and you burn them and, and you get them out of your house and it's a big fixing. Okay, good. But then I was thinking, you know what? Is it possible to go through the year without making any crumbs? It's impossible, right? We, how do you get through the year without making crumbs? Everybody makes crumbs. It's, it's normal. It's, no, it just, it's normal. It happens. So maybe we can just think about that for a moment to just dwell on our own humanity and to appreciate our own humanity and to appreciate also the fact that Hashem is there with us a thousand percent and that He knows the world that He created. He knows, and he knows us as well. And there can't be any more comfort than that. And to understand something which is maybe even more fundamental, and we'll close with this thought, is that, you know, we've hit on it other times, but it has to be emphasized. Whenever you use an English word, you're putting an alien philosophy or an alien theology on top of the Torah. Because it's a translation. It's not the word itself. Um, we use the word punishment a lot. And the, the word, that word does exist in Hebrew, by the way. But, but the deeper rabbis use a different word. They use the word tikkun. They use the word fixing. That any difficulty that we're experiencing in our life is not Hashem going, payback time! <laughs> yes! <laughs> you thought you could do that? Well, think again. It's not, it, that's not God. That's not our God. That's, that's not real. That's how we experience it because it is painful. And it feels alarmingly close to a punishment. I mean, it's a very, it's a very, almost like a hair's breadth worth of difference between the two. But that hair's breadth worth of difference is all the difference in the world. It's a tikkun. It's a fixing. Anything that we're going through, anything that's painful, it's a fixing. It's a fixing. And so, so the difference is, the difference is, like, um, Reb Shlomo says, you know, what's the difference if um, a child, he said this on Yom Kippur, what's the difference if a child comes to its mother and, um, you know, or if, and it's covered in dirt, or if a child is covered in dirt and it comes to, uh, say, the uh, housekeeper, right? The cleaning lady, whatever it is. 
So, so he said, the cleaning lady will be like, what? You're all dirty. Get off your clothes. i got to clean them all up. And whereas a mother will take a, a, a washcloth and just, oh, look, you got yourself all dirty and sponges you off. You know? Um, I saw something... I saw something last night, and I want to I stop with this. I thought it was really... I just thought it was fantastic. Um, there's something called... We've never discussed it before. It's called Parikshira. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a book. It was a collection that was put together. And um, there are different uh, authors that are proposed who, who co- collated all these things. But I think even the latest author is a good 2,000 years ago. So it's a really old, it's a really old safer. And what the person who put it together did, in, it was a really, it was a stroke of genius, of, of inspiration. The, the, um, they went through Tanakh, okay? Um, and by the way, the, the, some of the different candidates for who did this was David Amelech, another is Rabbi Akiva, so really we're talking about the, the, the greatest people ever who, who were the potential uh, collators of this, okay? They anthologized all of, the, all of these songs of praise throughout the entire Tanakh that every different creature says. So at, at one point it will say in the Psalms, the, um, the, uh, the sun says this praise to Hashem. So they take that one verse and it's sort of like, okay, that's the sun. Another place it will say, the rooster says the following. So they took the rooster. And another place it says, the fish say. And another place it says, the weasels say. And another place it says, lightning says. And another place it says, the fields say. And, and it just goes all over. And so they collect the songs of all of nature. It's a good album for you. Really? I mean, right? Okay. Um, so... Um, so anyway, if you look at the very beginning, I bought it as sort of like, they, they just came out with a beautiful edition, actually, I think a couple of years ago, but it's gorgeous. It's like one of these little pocket-sized editions. Art Scroll put it out, and it's got full-color photographs on each page. Each page is a different aspect of creation with a gorgeous picture, and then it's got the verse of praise in Hebrew, and then in English, and then a short little explanation what this means. And um, they say that it's like a segula, it's like a blessing to go through it, and it makes you happy and things like that. And it's so so people say it. And I gave it as a, a gift to to my daughter, just uh, you know, just as a way of saying I love you. So so she so she said, well, let's let's learn it together, you know. So so I said, okay. So we just kind of opened it at random, and I said, well, wait, if we're really going to do this, let's start from the beginning and go through. Okay, so the uh, first, the first one is the heavens. The second page is the earth. Okay, the third page is the Garden of Eden. And I read this last night, and I was like, "Wow, I'm going to talk about the Garden of Eden tomorrow." And it wasn't exactly on the topic, so so we'll hold off on that. What the Garden of Eden says, basically, it's unifying spiritual and physical pleasure. Okay, bringing the body and soul together. Okay, that makes sense. And then, you ready for this? After the Garden of Eden, 
You know what the next thing was? That they have the song of this place praising God? Gehenim. Loosely translated as hell. What is the song of praise to God that Gehenim says? Alright, and we'll conclude with this because I just was blown away. I was just so impressed, okay? I mean, it's a shallow word to use, but I was. I was just so impressed by God, you know? Like, sounds funny to say it like that, but um, the point being that God is on our side, right? So if you want to, if you want to have a more sort of like, and by the way, other religions lie about Judaism. They lie about Judaism, and they'll tell you that the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, is a vindictive God. What a bunch of horse things. <laughs> really. I mean, it's so insulting. It is so insulting. How dare they? How dare they say such things about God? How dare they? So you say, well, wait a second, there's a hell, isn't there? Well, do you want to know what hell says? <laughs> Listen to what it says. I wish I could quote it exactly, but I'm going to paraphrase it. It says that it's it basically... Oh, boy. With that introduction, I have to quote it exactly. So please pardon me that I can't quote it exactly. But this is the, this is the bottom line. Gehenna says that it... It, it, it's thanking Hashem so much to be able to do something for those who yearn. Okay? So what is, the, what is the translation of that? What is the meaning of that? Okay, so we have to do a little cosmic uh, geography right now to understand what Gehenim is exactly. Again, the, the non-Jewish world will tell you, you know where Gehenim is? And they'll point below the earth. That's incorrect. Okay? You have the earth is here, above the earth is Gehenim, above Gehenim is Shemayim. Okay? That is the structure of the cosmos. Okay? Earth below, above earth, Gehenim, or hell if you will, above that, Shemayim or heaven. How does it work? All souls have to pass through Gehenim on the way up to Shemayim. Now, Gehenim is sort of like a, um, imagine a dry cleaners for the soul. Okay? It cleans you up before you get to Shemayim. So, the tzaddikim, the righteous among us, zip through Gehenim. Those who um, didn't clean themselves up in this world, didn't do tshuva in this world, didn't rectify whatever they need to rectifying this world, they stay a little bit longer in Gehenim, and then they go up to Shemayim. And then depending on how, like if there's someone who did huge amounts of Averas, and didn't make any attempt whatsoever to clean up their act, okay, so they're going to spend longer there. That's going to be a more difficult process, but nonetheless a passing through, Okay. So, um, there's an opinion there. By the way, they, they brought a footnote. They didn't explain why, but I want to offer an explanation. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, one of the great Torah commentators, said that if you're going to say Perak Shira, don't say the, the verse about Gehenna on Shabbos. 
And I think the reason is, I don't know if all of you know this, but Gehenna, as we understand it, is closed on Shabbos. All the, all the souls get out of Gehenna on Shabbos. And in fact, if you want to hear something really deep, there are certain Sadiqim who are known to have the keys to Gehenna in every generation. And what does that mean? Well, in fact, I've heard it said about the Amshin of a Rebbe in this generation, that that may be one of his holy intentions, one of his kavanas for keeping Shabbos as long as he keeps it. Because it's known that he keeps Shabbos, I don't know till when, Sunday night or maybe even later than that. Because as long as he's keeping Shabbos, if he has the keys to Gehenna, Gehenna stays closed. Incredible, right? Not only that, but there are several stories. I know a few myself, and I'm sure there are many more, of tzaddikim who have gone through Gehenna and who have stayed in Gehenna and refused to leave Gehenna until the other neshamas in Gehenna went up with them to Shemayim. So, um, there's a lot on this, okay? But the point is this. The point is, is that Gehenna sings a song of praise to God. And that song of praise is, Gehenna thanks God for being able to help fix whatever last fixing needs to be done for the souls that pass through so that the souls can enjoy their eternal reward in Shemayim. So Gehenna, the opposite of being this incarnation of God's vindictiveness, the opposite of that, testifies and praises God, thank you so much for allowing me to be the last step to get all of these neshamas up into Shemayim and to clean them all up so that they can bask in your light. So, let me finish with this last, last, last thought. I saw something so good from the Rishon Rebbe, and this will be our, our battle cry into the week, back into the world. Um, he said the following, something so good. He said, you know, a person has to be like a clock in a house that's on fire. If the clock itself, if the clock itself is not on fire, it continues to tick and do its job. <laughs> and that's how we have to be. Unless we ourselves have been incapacitated, if it's short of that, even if the house itself is on fire, you just got to be like a clock, bless you. And you just got to do your thing and keep on doing it, bless you. So Shem should bless us with the strength to continue to tick and we should be able to look at that holy clock, right? And see that Mashiach has come. David, how do we know that